as Lee has pointed out to us the last few weeks, in the story of the life of Samuel, beginning with his mother, Hannah's prayer for a son, and then his call by God's audible voice at a very young age, and as his life as the last so-called judge of ancient Israel took place at the end of a period in Israel's history called the time of the judges. That's when all these events occurred. If we can pull that timeline up. That period of time lasted probably about 300 to 350 years or so from shortly after the Israelites settled in the promised land. Joshua's death kind of marked the beginning of it. Uh, That's about 1400 B.C. until Saul becomes king, which Lee covered again the last couple of weeks. Uh, And that probably was about 1050 B.C. Eventually, the people demanded, as we've already heard, that Samuel appoint them a king. There were several reasons for this. This has already been discussed. And and let's give them a little bit of credit at first. Part of the reasons were legitimate. First of all, Samuel was getting old, and his two sons were starting to assume the role as kind of judges. And judges were definitely kind of a combination of the Supreme Court, the President, and the Congress, but they were a much watered-down version of authority than a king. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But these two sons weren't acting right. They were crooks. And so legitimately, they didn't want it to be ruled by these two boys. But the most compelling reason for them wanting a king is simply all the nations around them had a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. And God knew that their demand for a king was more than just a rejection of these two boys. It was a rejection of him as their true king. They simply did not trust God under the system that he had established after Joshua's death. And he also knew some things about kings because he knew some things about human nature since the garden. He knew that a king would oppress his people. He told them this earlier. Okay, I'll give you a king, but he's going to tax the dickens out of you. He's going to take all your livestock and all your gold. He's going to impress your sons into military service. And he's going to become extremely wealthy at your expense. That's called oppression. And God also knew that uh, things would not go well with their kings eventually. We'll see that develop in the next few weeks. But these people had a bigger issue, and I want to talk about this morning. And we haven't talked much about this in the book of Samuel. They had a bigger issue than crooked judges or oppressive kings. This was an issue that plagued them throughout all their ancient history and still plagues us today, although it manifests itself in my life and yours in quite a different way than it did in theirs. But it has to do with something very important, the first commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The question, to put it in contemporary terms and in ancient terms, is who or what will you worship? These ancient people had a tendency to disobey the first commandment and to shift their primary affections and devotions and worship from the one true God to idols. Now, everybody's going, whew. He's letting us off the hook for a few minutes. Idols made of wood and stone. They named these idols after so-called deities of the people around them. Names like Baal and Asherah that you'll see today. There were other names later in Israelite history. The Old Testament prophets often referred to to this idol worship as 
spiritual adultery. And uh, that's a metaphor that implies a lot of things. Obviously, there are sexual connotations or extreme intimacy implications. But it's a metaphor that implies a covenant-like marriage between God and his people. It's the lover paradigm. In the Old Testament, the primary paradigm, the lover paradigm, is God saw, he's pictured as a male lover pursuing a female lover that he calls Israel. He strongly desires their affection and their giving back to him for the good things that he will do for them, just adoration and love. And in the New Testament, the metaphor carries over, the allegory does, to Jesus Christ and his church, the bride of Christ. So this morning, I want you've got to think about this talk in terms, partly, in terms of that lover paradigm. And most of the time, God simply ridiculed these wooden or stone objects as powerless. We'll see that today. But his prophets also tell us there were spiritual forces at play behind these things. Based on the behavior associated with idol worship, it's pretty clear there's more going on than just going into a room and bowing down and making some incantations to an idol. Demons were behind this perverted worship. Perverse and promiscuous sexual behavior. I'll give you a few verses today about that. And child sacrifice were often associated with this demonic idol worship. God used the same type of language, by the way, in the Old Testament about people that consulted spiritists or spiritualists and mediums as well as those that worshipped idols. So I'm going to give you a little sampling. Literally, there are hundreds of verses like this in the Old Testament. I struggled to just pick out six. Actually, I started with a much larger list and narrowed it down. I thought you all might get a little tired of it. But at the risk of overwhelming you, I want you to get a feel for this from God's perspective. Let's start in Leviticus, and I'll just move forward throughout the Old Testament. Again, sampling six passages of Scripture, but I could have used hundreds. God says this to Moses in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6. He says, I will set my face against the person who turns to mediums and spiritists, and here's this sexual term, to prostitute himself by following them, and I will cut him off from his people. Keep going. Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17. Again, this is Moses speaking now, and what he's doing, he's written a song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. And, and he's singing literally an incredible kind of recitation of the history of God's dealing with ancient Israel. And he gets to verse 16 and 17, and he says this, They, meaning Israel, made him, meaning God, jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons. (laughs) Do you get it? Which are not the one true God, but he points out something that you need to remember. These spiritual forces have some degree of power and spiritual authority. We're not, it's not clear from Scripture how much authority they have, where they got this authority, but I can cite to you case after case. Let's just go to Jesus. Jesus, out there in the desert, being tempted by Satan, and they're having a conversation, and Jesus is reminded by Satan of something that Jesus doesn't disagree with. In fact, he validates Satan's statements later when he calls Satan the ruler of this world or the prince of this world. Satan says this, 
The kingdoms of this world are mine. I can give them to whoever I choose. I'll give them to you if you'll bow down and worship me. More on that in a minute. And, and, and also, Daniel 10, one of those weird stories from the Old Testament, it talks about territorial spirits resisting angels that are trying to break through to Daniel. It's clear there are things going on in this room this morning and in this world and in this universe that we can't see or fully understand. And there are spiritual forces at play. Moses called them gods they had not known, or lesser gods is the literal translation. Lesser spiritual powers. Gods that had recently appeared in their worship. Gods your fathers did not fear or worship. They're worshiping demons. That's what's behind those idols. Let's keep going with another passage of scripture. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 24. It gets a little more perverse here. They're talking about, the writer's talking about a time when Rehoboam was king of Judah. And he's reciting what worship looked like and how detestable things had gotten. He says there were even male shrine prostitutes. This is not metaphor or allegory. This is literal in the land. You go to a shrine, like a little mini temple, to worship Ashereth. And terrible, perverse sexual practices are happening there. There were female shrine prostitutes. We know that from other passages of Scripture. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. And the people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Next passage of Scripture. 2 Kings 17, 16 and 16, 17. They, meaning Israel, forsook all the commands of the Lord, their God, and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole, and they bowed down to all the starry hosts. It's kind of like extreme astrology. And they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters. How do you become that depraved? in the fire and they practice divination and sorcery again divination and sorcery are tied or associated with idol worship and they sold themselves to, to do evil sold themselves is a again a lover term it's spiritual prostitution or adultery they sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord provoking him to anger or extreme anger next passage of scripture Jeremiah 2.20. Hundreds of years later, Jeremiah would say this about them. Long ago, you broke off your yoke. Talking about their ties, their allegiance, their covenant making, with their covenant making God. You tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. And indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. There's probably allegory there talking about spiritual prostitution. It may be literal. Hosea 2.13, a book that's very much the lover paradigm. Hosea 2.13 says this, God speaking through his prophet Hosea, I will punish her, meaning Israel, his lover. For the days she burned incense to the Baals, she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after other lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. You're probably asking about now why I referred earlier to us today still struggling with some form of idol worship. Well, it could be literal. Maybe a few of you have dabbled in things like witchcraft or the occult or astrology or mediums or maybe a pantheistic religion. That really wasn't what I was thinking of. 
what I was even talking about. Let's jump forward in the story about a thousand years or so. And as we do, again, I'm going to ask you this question. What or whom is the object of your deepest affection this morning? A thousand years after Samuel, Jesus recognized that some things other than just idols or spirits could become the object of Jim's deepest affection, mine and yours. Here's Jesus on one possible competitor for our allegiance, our worship, and our devotion of our time, talent, treasures, influence, and thoughts. Sermon on the Mount, kind of the key passage of Jesus' ethos, if you would. 6.24, he's been talking about money and possessions. He says this at the close of it. No one can serve two masters. This whole idea of serving two masters, we don't think of it in the way they thought of it. He's literally talking about enslaving yourself to something. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There's one possible idol, and let me tell you, the translation literally doesn't mean money. It means worldly possessions. You can't devote yourself, Jim, to all the stuff that you have. You better hold it loosely. You better hold it loosely. Your homes, your cars, your boats, your 401Ks, your bank accounts. They can enslave us if we're not intentional about holding them loosely and constantly, daily, recommitting ourselves in praise and worship to the one true God. And remember, He is the lover of our soul. He deserves my thoughts, my attention, and my time. And I can have stuff, but I've got to hold it loosely. That's one example. Now I want to put it in a broader context. And this is a little more cryptic. It's from another New Testament passage. And it goes to the whole idea of where we live. And back to this idea of who's running this world system to some degree still. It's a fallen angel. And John points this out in 1 John 2.15. Jim, don't love the world or anything in the world. Now he's not talking about, Jim, it's wrong for you to look at a beautiful stream or a beautiful Ozark hillside in the fall to see the leaves. Or go to the Rocky Mountains in a blizzard and appreciate the beauty. He's not saying that or the ocean or the grandeur of the world. That's not what he's saying. He's going to define what he's talking about. He's talking about a world system that's based on a meistic attitude. Me, mine, i got to have it. And he describes that system in just a moment. And he says if anyone loves that system, they're really enslaved to the ruler of this world. The love of the Father is not in him. For everything that's in the world, the cravings of sinful man based on our autonomous, rebellious nature that we inherited from our ancient ancestors, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life or boasting of what you and I have done or accomplished, it comes not from the Father but from the world. And then he points out a duh that we struggle to remember on a daily basis. The world and its desires. And its system are going to pass away. They're all going to burn up someday. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Let me add this. The world will always validate your sin nature and mine. It does. The culture will validate it. We're called to live counterculturally and to look to God for our validation. 
more on that. Again, reviewing. This world system has a prince or a ruler. Jesus said he came to dethrone. Satan knows that the real issue is who or what you will worship. He offered Jesus power out there in the desert. He offered him power when he tempted him in the desert, that confrontation between Jesus and Satan. He offered him power if he would bow down and worship him. You may not be tempted to worship Satan. I guess a certain percentage of our culture is tempted that way, but most of us are not. We're Western materialists, so we struggle with the supernatural paradigm anyway. So that's not my primary temptation of yours. So if he can't get us there, what he's going to do, he's going to try to divert your time, your devotion, your affections away from the true lover of your soul who longs, by the way, for your affection. You are the apple of his eye. You're the one he's pursuing. He's madly in love with you. He wants your worship. He wants my devotion. He wants my affection. He doesn't want me to waste them on lesser gods that are going to burn up someday. He came to reconcile you to daddy. That's what he came for. Now, that was a real long setup for a talk that I haven't even started. But it's critical that we keep spiritual warfare and worship in mind as we turn back now to the year 1050 B.C. and hear the words of an old man nearing the end of his life, his ministry. And as we cover the text, keep asking yourself this question. What do I need to repent of and will I repent? And invite the Holy Spirit to mess with you and ask him, what do I need to repent of and will I repent? Will I repent? This is all about choices and consequences this morning. You get to choose. Your choices matter. I'll date myself. Still watch it every time it replays on television, sometimes three or four times a week. It's a quote from Russell Clough in Gladiator. What we do here today echoes in eternity. Your choices have eternal consequences. Or as Lee always says, they matter. What you decide to do matters. Now, with all that backdrop in mind, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And we'll look at verses 1 through 25. We'll read it, and I will lightly exposit it. I've got so many bookmarks in my Bible. There it is. The text. Samuel, speaking to all of Israel, assembled together. I've listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. Saul's in the crowd. He's going to point him out later. As for me, I'm getting old and gray, and he could add tired, I'm sure. And my sons are here with you. And I read every commentary on this. My sons are here with you. I don't know what he meant. They're a mess. I don't know if he's trying to say, please make them, you know, I I don't know. Or if he's saying, well, they're here, and I know they're messes, but they're better than what you're about to get into, the mess you're about to get into. Maybe that's what he's saying. I've been your leader from youth, but he's not going to talk about his boys anymore. He's going to talk about himself. And this is very similar to Job chapters 29 and 31. I would encourage you to go check that out. If you want to see somebody defend their integrity and list how we should live life, check out Job's defense of his integrity to his friends who are accusing him in Job 29 and 31. It's a much more longer passage of Scripture than this, and it's more detailed. But as he starts to defend his integrity, the scene is like a courtroom. 
And he puts himself on trial. And he asks them to be the judge and the jury. And God is the witness. So they know when they've got to speak truth. And he said, have I cheated any of you? Have I taken any of your donkeys or any of your livestock? And, and, and also he's reminding them of something else backhandedly. There's a king coming. And he's going to take your donkeys. He's going to take your livestock. He's going to take your sons and put them in the army. And he's going to get everything for himself. I didn't do that. That's not the way I live my life as your judge. Well, let's read it. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord in this courtroom and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I'll make it right. So they yell back at him. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You've not taken anything from our hand. Samuel said to them, Then the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed, meaning himself, this day, that you've not found anything in my hand. And they yell back, He's our witness. They're agreeing with him. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers. Now he's going to start into kind of a little mini review of the history of Israel. It's not near as long or as powerful as the one Joshua did that Lee covered a few weeks ago. And I'm going to go back there a few minutes and pick out a few of those selected verses for you. But he's going to kind of give a quick mini review of the history of Israel. And he's asking them to remember the good things that a good God has done for them. It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then stand here because I'm going to confront you with evidence. Back to the courtroom scene again. Before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, he cried out to the, they cried out, Israel did to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your forefathers out of Egypt, settled them in this place. Then they forget the Lord, and Lee pointed this out. This starts this whole cycle of sin, repent, blessing. But they forgot the Lord as he sold them into the hand of some guy that was the commander of some army of Hazor. And he lists a few of the people that had tormented them during his 350 years of the judges. The Philistines over and over. The king of Moab, he fought against them. And they'd always cry out to the Lord, and we say, we, we've sinned, we've forsaken the Lord. And again, this is really about first commandment stuff. Their primary sin is they're rejecting God and they're starting to worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies. We'll quit worshiping all the idols and we'll start worshiping you again if you'll just deliver us. They're negotiating with him. Then the Lord sent, he names four of the many judges, Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you live securely. But when you saw this one king, king of the Ammonites, coming against you, you said, hey, we want a king like that. We want our own king to rule over us. Even though the Lord your God was your king. Verse 13. Now, points over at Saul. He's standing there kind of sheepishly probably. Here's the king you've chosen. The one you asked for. See, Lord has sent you this king over you. And then he starts to say something that's important. There's a grace statement that's going to pop up twice in here. Even though you made God really upset by asking for a king, and rejected him, he'll still bless your socks off if you and your king will just obey him and keep his commandments and his ethos. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against the commands of both you and the king who reign over you, follow the Lord your God, good. Rules and consequences or choices and consequences, excuse me. But if you do not obey the Lord and you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. In that history I just reviewed, he'll turn against you too. 
Verse 16, now then stand. And he's going to just give him a sign to prove to him that he's still a prophet, that he still speaks for the Lord, and to kind of indict them on this king thing. He just, in the dry season of the harvest, he calls up a thunderstorm, <laughs> and it starts raining. And they go, oh, my goodness. God really is God again. God does this throughout the Old Testament over and over and over. And here he's doing it again. And, and so all the people stand in awe of the Lord and Samuel after he, after he calls up the thunderstorm and it starts raining. He wants to tell them he's doing it just so they'll realize the evil thing they did in the eyes of the Lord and they ask for a king. Skip down to verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, they holler out, pray to the Lord your God. They know he's a priest and an intercessor. For your servants so that we will not die so that God won't kill us. For we've added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. In addition to idol worship, <laughs> we've asked for a king. Add to all our other sins. Samuel says again a grace statement. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And don't turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor they can rescue you. They're just useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, now he starts talking about part of his role as a priest is to intercede. And if he doesn't intercede, it's called sin. He says, as for me, far be it from me that I'm not sinned against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And he says, I'm going to keep teaching you as long as I'm alive from the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, what's right, the ethos of heaven, so to speak, in their day and time, what is good and right. Let's pause there a minute. I'll go to, to this again later on in the talk. But I want us to remember something this morning. If you're here and you're a Christ follower and you really know him and you belong to him, the Bible's pretty clear in 1 Peter 2, 9 and other places. He considers you a priest of God most high, a royal priesthood. You're chosen by God to offer up the sacrifice of praise and worship to him and to intercede. Two things priests do. They minister to the Lord and they minister to the people. And they intercede for the people before God. And we're called to do that. And as he points out here, if we don't do that, it's called sin. We're letting God down. The Reformation was about taking us back to the first century, back to the true essence of Scripture and reminding us that it's not just paid religious professionals or people with clerical robes on that are priests of God most high. If you want to see what a priest looks like when you go home today, look in the mirror. That's what we're called to do. That was a little sidebar. Let me go on. Verse 24. Be sure to fear the Lord. Here again, he closes with a simple choice and consequences statement. Be sure to fear the Lord and to serve him faithfully with all your heart. And remember as you do, it'll bolster your faith. It'll increase your obedience. If you consider what great things he has done for you. Do you have a list? I have to. I have to keep a list. I have to keep going back to it. To remind myself of those spiritual markers throughout my life where God showed up big time. Not only that, even the little things I keep track of, and I thank him for it. When I'm depressed and I'm down, when the liars overwhelm me, Jim, you'll never change. You'll never keep your mouth shut. You'll never keep doing this. You'll never keep doing that. And really, you're a mess if everyone knew what you're really like. And he's whispering in my ear, and by the way, that's not the Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit wants me to change, but that's not the way he speaks. I have to turn at times and remember the good things that a good God has done for me. And I hope you have ways of remembering that and recalling it regularly to bolster your faith and in connection to the lover of your soul. Yet, he says, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king are going to get swept away. Wow. Some more comments on the passage. The whole passage is similar, as I've already stated, to a passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. It was another farewell speech that Lee read from, and I'm going to read from it again. It was made about 350 years before by Joshua. It's recorded in Joshua chapters 23 and 24, and I'm just going to read just five or six verses, excerpts from that speech, just to remind you or to hammer the point. Verse 6, Joshua speaking, a much lengthier recitation of God's dealing with Israel. He says, be very strong. Be careful to obey. Again, the emphasis is on our part of this. I can't explain fully the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, so to speak. No one has been able to do that, even though some people think they have, at least not to my satisfaction, probably not to yours. Fully, I don't get it all, but I know that we have a part to play, and our choices matter. And Joshua knows that. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that's written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the left. He says, don't associate with these nations. He's talking about, not talking about don't trade with them or ever associate with them. I would go New Testament on you. Don't be overcome by the evil of the culture around you, but overcome evil with good. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. Again, it's first commandment stuff. You must not serve them or bow down to them. Skip down to verse 16. Choices and consequences again. But if you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods, other spirit beings that have some degree of authority, but they're evil, and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land that he has given you. Joshua chapter 24, two more verses, verses 14 and 23. Now, fear the Lord. Have a reverent awe of his holiness and his power and serve him with faithfulness. And they literally still have little gods, little idols in their saddlebags and in their homes. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped before the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 23, same thing again. Throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. What else can I say about the passage? Back to Samuel in our story. He knew that he had a duty to pray for the people. That was his priestly role of intercession. God would later put Samuel in a class with Moses when it came to intercession. That's a big class. Remember Moses? Moses was the guy that stood between God and the people on that mountain knowing that it was fire and smoke and all powerful. And he says, kill me, don't kill them. These are your people for the sake of your name. That's pretty powerful intercession. He put Samuel in that class in Jeremiah 15.1. Hundreds of years later, Jeremiah is not quite the intercessor these two are. He's joining God in his anger, and he wants them to wipe them out. And so he said to this to Jeremiah, if even Samuel and Moses were to show up and intercede for the people, I would not withhold judgment. I've had it up to here. They've crossed the line. Another key point, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Make it your passion. People who are deeply connected to God have great 
influence with them. I don't know what that means theologically, if it even fits in your theological pipe. But it's true from Scripture. People who are deeply and intimately connected to God have great influence with Him. We too, again, are considered priests of God Most High. Peter calls us a royal priesthood, again, a chosen people, verse 1 Peter 2, 9, called to declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness and into light and also in other places to intercede for the people around us, our friends and family. Don't miss, too, again, what I pointed out earlier, the second chance or the grace in this passage. When Samuel indicted the people for asking God for a king, he told them again that God would still bless and protect them if they and their people and their king would simply choose to worship and obey him. Again, it's all about choices. And let me point out something else that's obvious. The prophets, the Bible, Jesus, people in your life, the Holy Spirit, are agents of reality. The grace of God is not just the second chance. It's not just the withholding of judgment. The grace of God is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need to repent and turn away from sin. Our judgment's coming. (laughs) That's a reality too we don't like to talk about. Another key point from the passage, and this is the main one. It's never too late to repent. Extreme example, thief on the cross. It's never too late to repent, to cry out to God, and to change your behavior. There may be only a few minutes left in your life, or a few months, or a few years, or a few decades, and there are going to be consequences because of your past behavior you're going to have to deal with the rest of your life. I'm not saying that. The thief was still crucified because of his sins, because he was a criminal. Or for your spiritual adultery. But the future, no matter how long it is, is always better without God, with God than without Him. The future is always better with God than without Him. Repentance and crying out, I'll say it again, to God is always an option, no matter how far down the sin spiral you are. It's always an option, no matter how far you moved away from God. Last point on the passage. This is more of a covenant renewal between God and his people. Like a a renewing of marriage vows, again, to go back to the lover paradigm. Than it is just the farewell address of an old man. Samuel is finishing his public ministry with the way he started. He read much earlier, we read much earlier in his life when he began by pointing out to the people the same thing in 1 Samuel 7, 3, when he told them, they would just choose to worship and serve God and get rid of their idols or less powerful spiritual evil beings it would go better for them and let me ask you a series of application questions sometimes I do this with application I'm just going to ask you some questions who or what are your other lovers we've all got them we're all tempted daily to what I would call some form of adultery or spiritual adultery rather than Focusing on God as our true lover. They vie for our time, our talent, our devotions, our affection, and our worship. Another way of saying it, what do you need to repent of? It's never too late. And will I repent? That's the question for this morning. Will I repent? It's a choice question. And the answer to it matters. Do you have, are you making a faith history with God? 
coming from a deepening relationship that's growing with him through his Holy Spirit, which you have access to if you really belong to him? Do you regularly review the good things that a good God, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, has done for you and thank him for it regularly? Are you embracing your role as a priest of God Most High, offering up to him not just corporately, but in your own personal devotion time, in your thought life as you go through the day? Are you offering up to him the sacrifice of praise and worship daily and interceding for your friends and your family? Lastly, have you deeply embraced the words of that song we sang earlier? There's hope in the promise of the cross. It's the anchor for my soul and yours. Have you deeply embraced the relational, not just the Savior from hell power, but the relational and spiritual power of the gospel? And have you been baptized as he commanded? The gospel. Let me remind you of it again. About 2,000 years ago, God, according to decisions he'd made much earlier in eternity past, wrote himself into the story. Before he ever created Adam and Eve, he knew they'd mess up. He knew it would require an incredible act of sacrifice and love on his part to pay for hard rules that he's written that hold the universe together. We don't, I don't like those hard rules. I don't understand them. You know what? It's not my universe. It's not yours. It's his. And he gets to make the rules. And they must be right because he's good and I believe he's good. And he required the blood of a perfect sacrifice. The atonement's not a popular doctrine today. To atone or pay for Adam and Eve and all their kids and my kids and your kids and us, our sins. Ultimately, he knew it would require the second person of the divine trinity, Jesus Christ, his son, to come to earth disguised as Mary's baby boy, be born to a teenage virgin, grow up in first century as the Romans call it Palestine or as the Jews call it Judea to grow up for about 30 years in an ordinary blue collar home maybe he'd done a few minor miracles around the house but his brothers thought he was crazy clear from scripture his mother knew better and then at about age 30 come out as a Jewish rabbi for three years teach powerful teachings and to validate them by walking on water, raising the dead, healing thousands of sick people, making food, stopping storms, you name it, he did it. And then the people that he created, Romans and Jews collaborated together, Gentile and Jew, to crucify their creator and their savior and the lover of their soul. And he died on a real Roman cross and for about three days in a tomb of a rich man. He came alive again. And now he sits on the throne of the universe waiting for the day that daddy will turn to him and say, go get your bride, son. Back to that lover paradigm we can't escape. That's the gospel this morning. Have you embraced it? Are you internalizing it daily? Is it not just saving you from hell, but is it saving you from a wasted and futile way of life as the Bible says, we inherit from our ancestors. I hope it is. If not, you have a choice. You can choose today. Lastly, as Job said in Job 16, 20, we have an intercessor in heaven. An intercessor, Jesus. 
And he's our friend. Job said, I have an intercessor, and he's my friend. We also have a high priest, as we know from the book of Hebrews. But he's much more than that, isn't he? Back to the king story. He's our soon-coming king. And unlike Saul, or even like David or Solomon, he did not and he will not blow it. Someday, he will physically return to our little Milky Way galaxy, our little corner of this vast universe that he created for you and for me. And we'll be with him forever and every eye will behold him, and every knee will bow, even those that despised him, and confess that he is Lord, Master, Adonai, Ruler, and King. But we don't have to wait till then, do we? We can stand right now and engage our great God and his Son, Jesus Christ, in worship, adoration, and praise. So let's stand right now. Communion is available around the room. We take it like the first century Christians did every week. To remember his sacrifice and his death. Confess your sins as you go and take communion together. Intercession is available around the room. Prayer team, come on up. And if God's calling you to go intercede for a total stranger, go do it. But right now, all hail King Jesus.